Heavenly Father, we come before you again, grateful for all that you've done for us. Being reminded that we're all here because of the precious blood that was shed by your Son for the remission of our sins. None of us are worthy in our own self-righteous behavior to earn your favor. We thank you for recognizing the situation for what it is and sending a Savior to save us from our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for paying a penalty for our sins through your body and your blood. And as in all things, we want you to be exalted and glorified. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would remove myself from this sermon and that it would be as if Jesus Christ were physically present speaking to all of us this morning. Indeed, be glorified in this body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take a seat. Get your Bibles out. We have a new sermon series called Kingdom Devotion, which is really a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, but there's a different focus this morning. The text that we'll be looking at this morning is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. So get your Bibles out. We will be going to other verses, or your phones, or whatever you have. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And I want to begin this morning talking about what I call the great temptation. Now, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, you can just listen to this verse. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. John Ortberg, in his book, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box, uh, wrote this. He said that my problem is not my lack of character. It's beyond that. It's that I can't even see how badly I lack character. He says, humans have an almost limitless capacity for self-deception. For instance, uh, psychologists speak of a massive integrity blind spot in human nature. And just to put you at ease, you're guilty of this as well, and myself included. It's called the self-serving bias. Do you remember me mentioning this a few years ago? The self-serving bias. We make ourselves the heroes of our stories to exaggerate our role in victories and to absolve ourselves of blame for failure and error. In other words, I make myself look good through my strengths, and I minimize my weaknesses. So here's some data. That's, this is true stuff. In one survey, 800,000 high school students were asked whether they were above or below average in social skills. And let me give you a hint. If you're a high school student, you've grown up in a digital age with video games and so on. Your social skills are lacking. Okay? But... They asked these 800,000 high school students how they rate themselves. And if they were accurate, they should have a, what, a 50-50 split. 
You want to guess what percentage of students rate themselves as below average in social skills? Zero percent. Furthermore, 25% of all students, means 800,000 high school students, 25% of all students rated themselves in the top 1%. Have you met any of those students? I haven't. Uh, this self-serving bias extends to every area. The majority of people in hospitals suffering from automobile crashes that they themselves caused rate themselves as above average drivers. They caused accidents. They're in the hospital in an accident they caused and they rate themselves an above average driver. Now you might think the education would make us more self-aware, right? You'd be wrong. 88% of college professors rate themselves above average. 25% rate themselves as truly exceptional. And another survey of 200 socialists found that half believed they would become one of the top 10 sociologists in the world. Is there any wonder that there are conflicts around tenure and promotion at that time of the year with professors? National surveys show that we claim to feel nine years younger than we actually are. I'll admit, that's not me. I feel like I am 61 in a 51-year-old body. And we claim that we look five years younger than other people our age. Again, I think I look five to ten years older than I am. And I've been told that. The church isn't exempt. Uh, George Barnett did a survey of pastors. People who are paid to teach on the text I just read to you, Romans 12, 3. Don't think yourself more highly than you ought to, right? But rather think yourself with sober judgment. 90% of pastors consider themselves above average preachers. 90%. And yet we're to handle that difficult text in Romans 12, 3. But perhaps the most ironic of all, when people have the concept of the self-serving bias carefully explained to them, the majority of people rate themselves as well above average in their ability to handle the self-serving bias. Now, if you need further proof of our capacity for self-deception, years ago, there was a survey done by the U.S. News and World Report in 1997, actually, and asked people this question, who do you think is most likely to get into heaven? Well, here are the results, okay? You can see, here's the first result. Mother Teresa, she has a 79% chance of getting into heaven, okay, by the people that were surveyed. Oprah, a 66% chance of getting into heaven. Keep in mind, it's 1997, because you'll see some of these other names. He was at his height with popularity, Michael Jordan, doesn't even claim to anything even to be a believer, but he's 65% chance. So far, so good. Colin Powell, 61%. Dennis Rodman, 28%. Okay. And now, of course, you recognize this name as well. The fact that he even has a chance is, is astounding is O.J. Simpson. He's at 19% chance of getting into heaven. But there was one vote-getter that topped even Mother Teresa. One individual got 87% shot at getting past the pearly gates. Do you want to know who that is? It was the person completing the survey. <laughs> Self. 
they rated themselves as an 87% chance, above Mother Teresa, mind you, okay, of who could get into heaven. So apparently people's thoughts ran like this. Out of all the famous people in the world, I'd put Mother Teresa at the top, but there's one person I have to say that has a better shot than Mother Teresa. Me. <laughs> the great temptation is to make ourselves look better than we really are. And to put it another way, we like to glorify self. Uh, Pastor Kent Hughes reminds us of this. I want to read this quote to you from his uh, book, The Message of the Kingdom. It says, none of us completely meets the standard of the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about the standards of righteousness that Jesus set. But at the same time, if we are true believers, something of the character of the kingdom, something of each of the Beatitudes will be authentically present in our lives. Spiritual poverty, humility, spiritual thirst, mercy, peacemaking. Along with this, there will be the presence of the surpassing righteousness of Christ. We may fail at times, but we will practice righteousness. Anger, adulterous thoughts, insincere talk, and retaliation will progressively vanish from our lives. Agape love will become characteristic of us. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and with his word, including the explicit teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, we will practice righteousness. However, this is where the danger lies. For once you begin to fulfill the righteousness of God, once you are flying spiritually, once you're living a life full of good deeds, it is very easy to begin doing your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. And that's the, temp the great temptation. We must diligently, is really what this text is saying to us, check our motives as we might fall to desire to please ourselves ultimately rather than to please our Lord. Now selfishness, folks, can lead to doing great exploits in the name of Christ when we really do so for ourselves. It can show up by going to the mission field and receiving the accolades of men for such sacrifice. When the real reason is to make a name for oneself. I did not know this, so I had to put this in here. Did you know that John Wesley, the great John Wesley, traveled to the primitive colonial state of the 18th century Georgia to do missionary work before he was converted. He thought that such action would improve his standing with God, a self-centered motive. Though he did a noble deed, he found that experience to be a miserable experience, wrought out with the wrong motives. If we fail to monitor our motives, we may find ourselves in the greatest show on earth. And that's the next point. Now, the greatest show on earth, of course, is what? It's a 1952 American drama film produced by the great director who? Cecil B. DeMille, remember him? Set in the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, the film won two Academy Awards for Best Picture and Best Story. This is so funny. It was a commercial success. It had a $4 million budget back in 1952, and it grossed $36 million. That means in today's terms, it had a $40 million budget, and it grossed $360 million. Now, that's not the greatest show on earth that I'm referring to, though. I'm referring to, which is the greatest show on earth, is our desire 
to make a good impression. We want to appear holy and pious and righteous, especially in the church. So we play that familiar religious game. We put on a show. But this is a game you don't want to play. Let me explain to you why. The verse, Matthew 6, 1, again, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Remember Matthew chapter 5, Jesus exposed the Pharisees and their interpretation, rather their perverted interpretation of the law of Moses. Now, Matthew chapter 6, he's about to expose their religious practices as a sham. And it begins with a warning. What's the first word in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1? That was a question. Beware. Okay, good. Now, normally when we think of the word beware, we typically think, at least I do, of a sign that says something like this. Beware private property, no trespassing allowed, right? Or beware of dog. Now, these warning signs, quite frankly, do very little, if any, thing to stop us from trespassing on private property or approaching a house with a dog, correct? But this warning from the lips of our Lord, it's not like these other warning signs. When he says beware, we better know what he means. Because there are consequences. So what does Jesus mean when he says beware? Well, he's about to tell us how the subjects of his kingdom observe their religious practices in terms of giving, praying, and fasting. And there is an inherent danger in how we observe our religious practices or our devotion. And what are the dangers we must be aware of? Well, in this context, obviously, beware points to the motives behind the Christian's devotion and duty. Folks, that's a present imperative meaning it calls for the wise subject of his kingdom to continually guard their motives carefully because apparently it's easy even to do our religious practices with wrong heart motives. Now specifically, we must be on the alert against being a man pleaser. Do you see that? It comes down to what we value more. The praise of men or the praise of God. And folks, we don't get paid twice. Look at that text again. That's really what it says. You don't get paid twice. Our payment is either the temporary present praise of men, or what? The eternal future reward from our Heavenly Father. And that is dependent upon your motive in your religious practices or your kingdom devotion. But this verse really introduces in this whole chapter a principle. Remember like a theme sentence? I remember in high school, what's the theme of this paragraph? And you always knew it was what? Introduced by what? The very first sentence in the paragraph. And we learned to write paragraphs with a theme in the first sentence. That's what this is. This verse is a theme. Well, what's the theme? Well, it's really this general principle 
And it's dealt with in Scripture from the start to the finish. And it's the principle of hypocrisy. And really, that's what this sermon is about this morning. Hypocrisy, the greatest show on earth. They're hypocrites in Genesis. They're hypocrites in Revelation. They're hypocrites when the world begins. And they're hypocrites when the world ends. They're hypocrites in every form of religion, and yes, including Christianity. There were hypocrites among the 12 disciples, and you know who that is. There were hypocrites in the leadership of the church, even the early church. And all these hypocrites had one thing in common. They put on a good show when they played the game of religion. Well, what is hypocrisy? Well, the Greek word hypocrite appears in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 6. It says this, so when you give to the poor, you see that? Do not sound a trumpet before you as what? Hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may be honored by men. And in verse 5, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. And in verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they may, will be noticed by men when they are fasting. So the idea here throughout this passage is one of, really, hypocrisy. And of course, in classical Greek, a hypocrite is used to refer to what? It's an actor on a stage who masks his real identity and assumes a role. The actor plays a part that isn't the truth about his life, who assumes something other than what is genuine. That's what an actor does. That's what they're paid to do. And then religion, and this is what is terrifying to us, is it is an outward show without an inward reality. That's the greatest show on earth. The outward show without that inner life of God within you. Now, the first hypocrite in the Bible is Cain. Everyone turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Look at verses 3 through 5. This is the first hypocrite. And what is disturbing about this is Genesis 1 through 3, well, 1 through 2 is the creation narrative. Genesis 3 is all about the fall of man when sin entered the world. The very next chapter, we find hypocrisy. It says, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, the question that I have, and perhaps you do as well, is why did God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's offering, right? You ever think of that? There's like two people that thought of that this morning, so I guess the three of us are kind of abnormal when everyone else is normal, right? Well, I'm convinced that God had instructed Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel to bring them an animal sacrifice. Well, why? 
Well, because the primary and necessary offering was the animal sacrifice, because it is that which speaks of, and this is the key point here, of the need for a substitutionary death for sin. Someone needs to pay the penalty for our sin. And of course, for the remission of sins, there always must be a what? A shedding of blood. But Cain, by bringing his own sacrifice, is giving no recognition that he is a sinner. You see that? This makes Cain's offering a self-righteous one. And in doing so, Cain pretended to worship God. His offering was really nothing more but showing off by displaying his ability as a farmer. And folks, when we pretend with God, that is hypocrisy. Now, the oldest book in the Bible is Job. Did you know that? It's the oldest book in the Bible. What does it say about hypocrisy? Well, actually, an awful lot. In Job 8, 13, just listen to these verses. It says this. So are the paths of all that forgot, forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. Folks, this is in the very, very beginning. Job 15, 34. For the congregation of hypocrites shall be desolate. Job 36, 13. By the way, the word hypocrite there is also the word godless. So we're talking about hypocr hypocrites, we're talking about the godless. People without God in their lives. Job 36, 13. But the hypocrites in, the, in heart store up wrath. So according to Job, from the very beginning, hypocrites are without hope and they receive judgment. Now God dealt with Israel's hypocrisy through his prophets. Thousands of years later, the prophet Amos wrote this. Now just listen to this, because it is very, very telling. This is the Lord speaking. I hate, the word hate is used here. There is one other time that the Lord uses hate, and we just went over this not long ago, and what else does the Lord hate? Divorce. I hate I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years? O house of Israel, you also carried along Sikath, your king, and Kian, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now, this is really, really tragic. God is saying, all those religious practices, their, their kingdom devotion, which God himself introduced and commanded to be used in worship of him, he says, I despise those. I hate them. Well, why? Because the people perverted and falsified their purpose. They had maintained the external. They were going through the motions, but the internal was what? Empty. They pretended 
to worship God all the while worshiping other idols. And the punishment for such hypocrisy was judgment in the form of exile. Now, it was not only true in the northern kingdom where Amos ministered to, it was also true in the southern kingdom to which Isaiah the prophet ministered. And he wrote these following words, and I want you to notice how similar God's words spoken through Isaiah are to his words spoken through Amos. This is Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Again, the very beginning, and what does he address? Look at verse 11. Let's listen to this. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand, to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity. I cannot endure the sacred meetings. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul, and here's the word again, hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Again, he says, almost identical to everything that I have introduced, God says, and I command to be used in worship of me all the feasts, all the new moons and the sacrifices and the incense. I despise it all. Why? Because it is fake. It is fake. Of what use to God were sacrifices and festivals Sabbaths in blood, if they were not accompanied by the kind of devotion that manifests itself in lives lived according to his holiness. You see, when people put on a show, their sacrifices become an abomination. In fact, the Lord wishes they would leave his courts and their endless worship services were no longer a pleasure to him, but a burden. And I wonder how many worship services going on today are a burden to him. Do you see that God cannot bear religious sin? And I'm going to assume by the deafening silence that you do. Let me put it this way. Religion which leaves sin unchallenged, God detests. What's the solution? Well, it's genuine religion. Verses 16 and 17 of Isaiah chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. And of course, for us today, what does that mean, to wash ourselves, to make ourselves clean? That's a work only done by the Spirit through Jesus when we receive him as our Lord and Savior. We are washed, we are cleansed. Then watch what happens. Then the deeds change. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. 
See, that's what happens when the inside matches the outside. So we see that there were hypocrites in Israel, and there were hypocrites in Judah when the two kingdoms divided. But later in Isaiah chapter 9, and this is just incredibly convicting, God continues his attack on hypocrisy. In Isaiah chapter 9, in fact, everyone go there, Isaiah chapter 9. Starting in verse 17. I think if you go to the middle of your Bible, you get to Psalms, then go to the right. You'll find Isaiah chapter 9. It says, Therefore the Lord, starting in verse 17, Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. In other words, God has always had a special place in his heart for the fatherless and the widows. Do you know that? Remember that? He's always had a special place for those people. But look what hypocrisy does. Hypocrisy leaves him with no room for mercy in his heart for the fatherless and widows. That is very sobering, isn't it? God hates religious hypocrisy so much that judgment is certain for those who partake of it. Turn to Isaiah chapter 29. Starting in verse 9. He says this, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot for it is sealed. When they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. In other words, folks, God gave people over to a drunken stupor, but not from wine. He blinded the eyes of the prophets and the seers. Folks, the prophets and the seers were the ones who heard from the Lord to warn the people of God's coming judgment. And if the people heeded the words of the prophets and the seers, and they repented, Judgment could be avoided. But you see, not in this case. God's judgment was so certain that if it was written down in plain language, who could read it? Nobody. So what in the world did the people do to deserve such judgment? Look at verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is a commandment taught by man. In other words, they are hypocrites. And there are plenty of other verses that we could get into in the Old Testament that talks about hypocrisy. But we are all at one point or more in our lives, we give honor to God with our lips, but our hearts are somewhere else. 
And these people substituted the divine commandments with human traditions. And they have an inadequate system of hypocrisy. Now, they're hypocrites in the time of Jesus. Just listen to this. This is perhaps the best definition of a hypocrite. It's in Matthew 23. Listen to this. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and the disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That was the place of authority and recognition and honor amongst the Jews. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But here's the thing. But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Now, while our Lord confronted a variety of sins in his brief time on earth, he never did rebuke any sinners like he rebuked the hypocrites in Matthew chapter 23. And then your own time later this, this week, you can look at this in Matthew 23, but he reserved the most harshest language, folks, for those religious fakes who had masked their evil hearts with a facade of pious behavior. I counted seven times he calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites in Matthew 23. I mean, there were also hypocrites in the early church. Remember this story. The church is born in Acts chapter 2. And you meet the first hypocrites in Acts chapter 5. You remember this story? But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsolved, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. And the story goes on to tell, of course, that the same fate fell upon his wife, Sapphira. They tried to put on a show of righteousness in the public setting, mind the way, because the people were bringing their offerings and the selling of land in front of the, the feet of the apostles in the entire congregation. So they are participating in their game of religion, playing the greatest show on earth, but God doesn't play that game. He doesn't play that game. He will not tolerate hypocrisy in his church. And so he strikes them dead. I mean, you want to talk about church discipline, right? Now, one would think that that would perhaps, hopefully, be the final story on hypocrisy in the church, right? Wrong. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in his words to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy. I mean, there were hypocrites in the first times, and there were hypocrites in the last times. Hypocrisy is never presented pleasantly in the Bible. It is seen, folks, as this. Leaven, that is a, a spreading infectious capacity. There was just too much. This is too wide of a subject for me to, to handle in one sermon, so I'm really 
summing up a whole lot, but it, it, the Bible so addresses this issue. It's a white sepulcher, sepulcher, have you said that word, a filthy grave stinking with death, but covered with, over with a whitewash. A whited wall, which in reality is nothing but dirt and mud packed together, but painted to look white, when in truth it is ugly brown. An overgrown grave so covered with grass that you no longer know it's a grave, you're so defiled in stepping on it. It's tares that grow amidst the wheat. In other words, there are in the church, wheat, believers, and tares, unbelievers. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a well without water. All the promises there of the water, it's down below, right? When the bucket is lowered and it returns, it's dry and empty. It's a cloak to cover sin. It's a, a mourner who mourns at a death because he's paid to mourn with fake tears. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is about to raise the little girl who had died. And they, they, by that point in time in history, they would pay professional mourners to come and mourn. So they were mourning. They didn't really, weren't really upset, but they were, it was fake tears. Because when Jesus arrives, what does he say? The girl is not dead, but she is what? Sick. And what do the people do then? They start laughing. So it wasn't genuine at all. Now you might be saying, I get it, Pastor. God detests religious hypocrisy. I need to check my motives as I practice my religious activities. Well, what is the right motive in my devotion to God? And that's what the great motive is. You must understand that to the Jew, there were three great cardinal works of the religious life. Three great pillars, you might think of them, in which the good life was based. The almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Now, Jesus would never have disputed that, but what troubled him the most, as William Barclay says, is that often in the human heart, in the human life, the finest things were done from the wrong motives. So what is the wrong motive? Well, Matthew 6, 1 is pretty clear. The praise of men. I do it in front of an audience so others may see me and I look good. And of course, you're doing nothing but glorifying yourself. Now that feels good, doesn't it? We can get a false sense of religious security when we practice our deeds before men and they recognize it. But what is the right motive? Well, one of them is certainly is to please God. For Thessalonians 4, again, Paul's saying, uh, he's, he's beseeching, he's exhorting people in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So in what I do, I excel still more in pleasing God. But they're really the, the best motive, or the right motive, is to please God. But the greatest motive, of course, is this one right here. And we forget this. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have what? Love. I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am what? Nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You want to 
for lack of a better term, be rich in heaven, have rewards from your heavenly Father, make sure that your motive when you are practicing your religious practices or you are practicing kingdom devotion, make sure it is done in love. Now, of course, from last week, what kind of love is that? It's an agape love. It's an agape love. It's God's love. Now, there are consequences that we briefly talked about. We're going to close with this this morning. To not practicing our kingdom devotion with the right motives. And I want to talk to you about what I'm going to call the great consequence. This is where it may get, hopefully, I've kind of lightened this portion of the sermon up, but this may get really convicting. But I'll read to you a, a quote that I've used before from Brennan Manning. He says, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, in the door of church, and deny him by their lifestyle, and that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Several years ago, a poll was taken that showed that the lifestyle activities of Christians were statistically the same as those of people claiming not to be Christians when it came to these following areas. You ready? So we're no different from the unbelievers in gambling, in visiting pornographic websites, from taking something that did belong to them, from saying mean things behind someone's back. We just went over that, right? Watching your words, loving your enemies. Consulting a medium or a psychic, having a, a physical fight or abusing someone, using illegal or non-prescription drugs, saying something to someone that's not true, getting back at someone for something they did, or consuming enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk. So in other words, we're not different in the world. Thus this whole real sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Because the very first section of Beatitudes was entitled what? Different. We are to be different. Now here's the thing. The only activity that was less common for Christians, and folks, this is not a joke, was recycling. 68% of Christians recycle versus 79% of non-Christians recycle. And every category that I just read were basically the same. That's not good, is it? Now this exemplifies what people mean when they say that Christians are hypocrites. And to be fair, there are wheat and tares in the church. So some of the hypocrisy is by people that aren't even believers. But they, say, they see people who claim to be morally upright, yet look, sound, act, and live no different than anyone else in the world. I mean, how is your life different from anyone else in the world? That's why I told you last week, when you are betrayed, when, when, when an enemy is, you have an enemy and they're coming at you, they're attacking you, that is an opportunity to do what? Separate yourselves from the world, to show that you're different by loving them. Now, the following humorous anecdote of mistaken identity just really further illustrates my point. A man is being tailgated by a woman who is in a hurry. 
He comes to an intersection, and when the light turns yellow, he hits the brakes. I got to identify with a woman here. That would kind of tick me off, too. I would push through that yellow light if I was driving. The woman behind him goes ballistic. She honks her horn at him. She yells her frustration in no uncertain terms. She rants and gestures. While she is in mid-rant, someone taps on her window. She looks up and sees a policeman. He invites her out of the car and takes her to the station where she is searched and fingerprinted and put in a cell. After a couple of hours, she is released, and the arresting officer gives her this, her personal effect, saying, I am very sorry for the mistake, ma'am. I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, using bad gestures and bad language. But I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Choose Life license plate holder, the Follow Me to Sunday School window sign, the Christian fish emblem on your trunk, and I naturally assumed you had stolen the car. John Rupert goes on to write about this, saying the world gets pretty tired of people who have Christian bumper stickers on their cars, Christian fish signs on their trunks, Christian books on their shelves, and Christian stations on their radios, and even the Christian jewelry they wear around their necks, Christian videos for their kids, and Christian magazines for their coffee tables, but don't actually have the life of Jesus in their bones or the love of Jesus in their hearts. Now this antidote rings true to me, you guys will enjoy this story because you know me well enough. This Friday afternoon, a few days ago, I received a call that a picture I had framed from Michael's in Federal Way I was ready for a pickup. So I told Erica I would go pick up the picture, and when I returned, we would go out for dinner. Now, this was 3 p.m. In my naive thinking, I thought that if I hurried... I could beat the traffic. Somehow my brain had forgotten that I live in Washington State. There's always traffic. Now the first sign that my dreams of a quick trip were dashed, now watch this, was just backing out of my driveway. There's construction going on down below us and a truck was coming up the road and since he had to ride away, I stopped. And I hate when this happens because I'm very decisive. I stopped. Even though this person has a right away, what do they typically do? They stop. I'm like, why are you stopping? You have the right away, right? So I waited. And I waited. And I waited. It's like two or three seconds by you. But it felt like an eternity, right? And I'm waiting. Eventually the truck pulled forward. And so now I'm behind this truck. And this truck is driving slow. I mean, under the speed limit, slow. Inwardly, people are laughing here because they're like, this is me. Inwardly, my blood is beginning to boil. My only hope for a quick trip now is that this truck, and I'm praying to God, don't turn left. Because I have to turn left, right? My heart sinks when I see the left turn signal light up on the tr back of the truck. Finally, the truck pulls out, but I have to wait again because a blue Honda Pilot is approaching on my right. I hope no one here has a blue Honda Pilot because you're going to get a big description of this car. At least I will now be following someone, I'm thinking, who has a taste in vehicles because I almost bought a Honda Pilot a few years ago. But still, I have to wait again. 
Now, when that vehicle passes, I can finally exit the neighborhood. I'm moving again, and I can feel my blood start to cool down when my worst fear is realized. The driver of this Honda Pilot is an even slower driver than the man in the truck. So now I'm behind two slow drivers. And my blood begins to slowly boil once more. Now, as I'm following this Honda Pilot down Kersey Way, I hope that perhaps this slow-moving Honda Pilot will either make a left or a right. Basically, get out of my way. But my hopes were dashed as I followed them past the church all the way to Auburn Way South. Now, as I am following, I notice a number of bumper stickers on the back of this Honda Pilot. One read, put Christ back in Christmas. Another one read, God bless America. Another one read, Walking Wounded Project. Of course, that's pro-military, supporting the military, uh, the wounded military. And the license plate cover read, every fourth child born is, in America is aborted. So I'm following a person who has similar tastes as myself in vehicles and is pro-America, pro-military, pro-life, and pro-church, just like me. Now, all things considered, this person was probably a Christian. <laughs> and a Christian pastor who is following them is on the verge of falling into a full-blown case of road rage, <laughs> all because he was in a hurry. And he determined that they were just driving too slow. Now, here's the thing. By all outward appearances, I looked fine. I wasn't hawking the horn or cursing the driver or riding their, their, their bumper, but inwardly, <laughs> there was a war raging. See, I was one poor choice from letting my frustration get the better of me, acting on my emotions, and damaging my witness for Jesus Christ. All because I was operating under a self-imposed deadline that was completely out of touch with the reality and that made me hurry. And my hypocrisy would be on full display for everyone to see. Now I shared this story with my wife at dinner and asked her, what is wrong with me? To which she replied, do you want me to start alphabetically or chronologically? <laughs> How much time do we have? In other words, what she was saying. Now what happens when our hypocrisy, though, is on full display? One of the most recent examples of hypocrisy that's had widespread damaging effects happened a few months ago. It took place during the storming of the Capitol. It was led by a now famous horn-wearing man, you probably see him in your mind, named Kunan Shaman. A group of rioters, and they made their way into the floor of the people, the Senate, and now they stood triumphantly behind the very dais where our elected officials, including Vice President Pence, have stood. And they were flagrant lawbreakers, right? They brought disgrace to our nation, and they endangered the lives of our political leaders. Michael Brown writes this, and yet they stopped for a word of prayer. Did you catch that? They lifted up their voices in Jesus' name. They made intercession for America. Talk about brazen hypocrisy. How dare they lift up a prayer to the God whom they are defying at that moment? How dare they lift their hands in worship after using those same 
hands to illegally breach the Capitol. But it gets worse and more comically absurd. Do you remember what they did? The men quickly realized that they were wearing hats, and that presented a problem because they must have learned somewhere that men should pray with their heads uncovered, which is based on a common misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 13. So they quickly stopped the prayer, removed their hats, because surely they must be careful in their religious observance, and then continued their prayer, ending with a hearty amen. And what has been the effect of that hypocrisy in our country? Now, next week is Easter Sunday. It doesn't feel like it, but it is. It's a time now when unbelievers are more open to attending church. I don't know if we can get any more people coming to church because we're still in this pandemic mode. Despite the fact that if you've had the vaccine, the CDC says you don't need to wear masks, you have states that are still requiring you to wear masks. That being said, as a way of practicing kingdom devotion, I want us to all look at Elise and Lydia. They have for you, and we're going to pass these out so you can't leave this room without taking some. Last Easter, I ordered these to pass out to the neighborhood. And of course, what happened? The pandemic. And there was no way we could go door to door. So Elise, and maybe Roger could help them as well, are going to pass these out for you to, to means you grab one, Angela. Okay. <laughs> yeah, take, take multiple ones. We, I have more as well. They're not for you. As much as I love you, they're not for you. Give them to a neighbor or to a friend or to whoever the Lord lays on your heart and invite them to church because there are two Sundays that people, particularly unbelievers, are more willing or open to coming to church. And what are those Sundays? Easter and what? Christmas Eve, exactly. And so even though we're still in a semi-lockdown, I think we're, we, was it Monday we go in phase three or do we already... We're in phase three, okay. So what I want you to do is just to pray about this and then to invite a neighbor or a friend to come to church. Now, the website does exist that's on the flyer. It's just, it'll take you to a different website. It's like encounter.blog or something like that. It's got the picture of the, the handout I'm giving you, okay? Most importantly, apart from actually putting into practice inviting other people is... On the very back of that flyer, what do you see? The address of the church and our time. So invite them to come to church. Now, how many more do we have left back there? Because I've got half a box full, plenty. Does anybody want more to pass out? They're going to be in the back on the table, okay? Please, I don't want to see any in this building. Take them all, go invite your friends. In other words, pray about it and act on that by faith. And let's see what God does. I'd like for this place to be full of people. Because next week we'll have an Easter message and a gospel presentation. Amen? Okay. The second point I want, his application point is, is don't drive in front of me. Just stay out of my way, all right? All right. What do you say? No, 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 no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't be in front of him. Just pull over, all right? Like that, I'm an emergency vehicle. Get out of my way, and I'll be fine. 
I didn't pray for patience. I want people out of my way. Right? Let me close the prayer and we'll close the song. You're all laughing because you feel the same way I do. I just will, will say it about myself. So let's pray for all us hypocrites in this church, right? Father, as we stand for worship this last song, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, convict us the areas of our lives where we're inconsistent, especially in those areas when it can be witnessed by others and we're a bad testimony to our devotion to our best friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we worship you, again, in, in spirit and in truth with this last song this morning. And all God's people said, amen. His word, my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life. Father, we come before you again, grateful for all that you've done for us, being reminded that we're all here because of the precious blood that was shed by your Son for the remission of our sins. None of us are worthy in our own self-righteous behavior to earn your favor. We thank you for recognizing the situation for what it is and sending a Savior to save us from our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for paying a penalty for our sins through your body and your blood. And as in all things, we want you to be exalted and glorified. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would remove myself from 
this sermon and that it would be as if Jesus Christ were physically present speaking to all of us this morning. Indeed, be glorified in this body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take a seat. Get your Bibles out. We have a new sermon series called Kingdom Devotion, which is really a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, but there's a different focus this morning. The text that we'll be looking at this morning is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. So get your Bibles out. We will be going to other verses or your phones or whatever you have. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And I want to begin this morning talking about what I call the great temptation. Now, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, you can just listen to this verse. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. John Ortberg, in his book, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box, uh, wrote this. He said that my problem is not my lack of character. It's beyond that. It's that I can't even see how badly I lack character. He says, humans have an almost limitless capacity for self-deception. For instance, uh, psychologists speak of a massive integrity blind spot in human nature, and just to put you at ease, you're guilty of this as well, and myself included. It's called the self-serving bias. Do you remember me mentioning this a, a few years ago? The self-serving bias. We make ourselves the heroes of our stories to exaggerate our role in victories and to absolve ourselves of blame for failure and error. In other words, I make myself look good through my strengths, and I minimize my weaknesses. So here's some data. That's, this is true stuff. In one survey, 800,000 high school students were asked whether they were above or below average in social skills. And let me give you a hint. If you're a high school student, you've grown up in a digital age with video games and so on. Your social skills are lacking. Okay? But... They asked these 800,000 high school students how they rate themselves. And if they were accurate, they should have a, what, a 50-50 split. Do you want to guess what percentage of students rate themselves as below average in social skills? Zero percent. Furthermore, 25% of all students, I means 800,000 high school students, 25% of all students rated themselves in the top 1%. Have you met any of those students? I haven't. Uh, this self-serving bias extends to every area. The majority of people in hospitals suffering from automobile crashes that they themselves caused rate themselves as above average drivers. They caused accidents. They're in the hospital in an accident they caused and they rate themselves an above average driver. Now, you might think the education would make us more self-aware, right? You'd be wrong. 88% of college professors rate themselves above average. 
25% rated themselves as truly exceptional. And another survey of 200 socialists found that half believed they would become one of the top 10 sociologists in the world. Is there any wonder that there are conflicts around tenure and promotion at that time of the year with professors? National surveys show that we claim to feel nine years younger than we actually are. I'll admit, that's not me. I feel like I am 61 in a 51-year-old body. And we claim that we look five years younger than other people our age. Again, I think I look five to ten years older than I am. And I've been told that. The church isn't exempt. Uh, George Barnett did a survey of pastors. People who are paid to teach on the text I just read to you, Romans 12, 3. Don't think yourself more highly than you ought to, right? But rather think yourself with sober judgment. 90% of pastors consider themselves above average preachers. 90%. And yet we're to handle that difficult text in Romans 12, 3. But perhaps the most ironic of all, when people have the concept of the self-serving bias carefully explained to them, the majority of people rate themselves as well above average in their ability to handle the self-serving bias. Now, if you need further proof of our capacity for self-deception, years ago, there was a survey done by the U.S. News and World Report in 1997, actually, and asked people this question, who do you think is most likely to get into heaven? Well, here are the results, okay? You can see, here's the first result. Mother Teresa, she has a 79% chance of getting into heaven, okay, by the people that were surveyed. Oprah, a 66% chance of getting into heaven. Keep in mind, it's 1997, because you'll see some of these other names. He was at his height with popularity. Michael Jordan doesn't even claim to anything even to be a believer, but he's 65% chance. So far, so good. Colin Powell, 61%. Dennis Rodman, 28%. Okay. And now, of course, you recognize this name as well. The fact that he even has a chance is, is astounding is O.J. Simpson. He's at 19% chance of getting into heaven. But there was one vote-getter that topped even Mother Teresa. One individual got 87% shot at getting past the pearly gates. Do you want to know who that is? It was the person completing the survey. <laughs> Self. They rated themselves as an 87% chance, above Mother Teresa, mind you, okay, of who could get into heaven. So apparently people's thoughts ran like this. Out of all the famous people in the world, I'd put Mother Teresa at the top, but there's one person I have to say that has a better shot than Mother Teresa. Me. <laughs> the great temptation is to make ourselves look better than we really are. And to put it another way, we like to glorify self. Uh, Pastor Kent Hughes reminds us of this. I want to read this quote to you from his uh, book, The Message of the Kingdom. It says, none of us completely meets the standard of the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about the standards of righteousness that Jesus set. But at the same time, if we are true believers, something of the character of the kingdom, something of each of the Beatitudes will be authentically pres present in our lives. 
spiritual poverty, humility, spiritual thirst, mercy, peacemaking. Along with this, there will be the presence of the surpassing righteousness of Christ. We may fail at times, but we will practice righteousness. Anger, adulterous thoughts, insincere talk, and retaliation will progressively vanish from our lives. A God by love will become characteristic of us. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and with his word, including the explicit teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, we will practice righteousness. However, this is where the danger lies. For once you begin to fulfill the righteousness of God, once you are flying spiritually, once you're living a life full of good deeds, it is very easy to begin doing your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. And that's the, temp- the great temptation. We must diligently, is really what this text is saying to us, check our motives as we might fall to desire to please ourselves ultimately rather than to please our Lord. Now selfishness, folks, can lead to doing great exploits in the name of Christ when we really do so for ourselves. It can show up by going to the mission field and receiving the accolades of men for such sacrifice. When the real reason is to make a name for oneself. I did not know this, so I had to put this in here. Did you know that John Wesley, the great John Wesley, traveled to the primitive colonial state of the 18th century Georgia to do missionary work before he was converted? He thought that such action would improve his standing with God, a self-centered motive. Though he did a noble deed, he found that experience to be a miserable experience, wrought out with the wrong motives. If we fail to monitor our motives, we may find ourselves in the greatest show on earth. And that's the next point. Now, The greatest show on earth, of course, is what? It's a 1952 American drama film produced by the great director who? Cecil B. DeMille, remember him? Set in the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, the film won two Academy Awards for Best Picture and Best Story. This is so funny. It was a commercial success. It had a $4 million budget back in 1952, and it grossed $36 million. That means in today's terms, it had a $40 million budget, and it grossed $360 million. Now, that's not the greatest show on earth that I'm referring to, though. What I'm referring to, which is the greatest show on earth, is our desire to make a good impression. We want to appear holy and pious and righteous, especially in the church. So we play that familiar religious game. We put on a show. But this is a game you don't want to play. Let me explain to you why. The verse, Matthew 6, 1, again, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Remember Matthew chapter 5, Jesus exposed the Pharisees and their interpretation, rather their perverted interpretation of the law of Moses. Now, Matthew chapter 6 He's about to expose their religious practices as a sham. And he begins with a warning. What's the first word in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1? 
That was a question. Beware, okay, good. Now normally when we think of the word beware, we typically think, at least I do, of a sign that says something like this. Beware private property, no trespassing allowed, right? Or beware of dog. Now these warning signs, quite frankly, do very little, if any, thing to stop us from trespassing on private property or approaching a house with a dog, correct? But this warning from the lips of our Lord, it's not like these other warning signs. When he says beware, we better know what he means because there are consequences. So what does Jesus mean when he says beware? Well, he's about to tell us how the subjects of his kingdom observe their religious practices in terms of giving, praying, and fasting. And there is an inherent danger in how we observe our religious practices or our devotion. And what are the dangers we must be aware of? Well, in this context, obviously, beware points to the motives behind the Christian's devotion and duty. Folks, that's a present imperative, meaning it calls for the wise subject of his kingdom to continually guard their motives carefully because apparently it's easy even to do our religious practices with wrong heart motives. Now specifically, we must be on the alert against being a man-pleaser. Do you see that? It comes down to what we value more. The praise of men or the praise of God. And folks, we don't get paid twice. Look at that text again. That's really what it says. You don't get paid twice. Our payment is either the temporary present praise of men or what? The eternal future reward from our Heavenly Father. And that is dependent upon your motive in your religious practices or your kingdom devotion. But this verse really introduces in this whole chapter a principle Remember that, like a theme sentence? I remember in, in high school, what's the theme of this paragraph? And you always knew it was what? Introduced by what? The very first sentence in the paragraph. And we learned to write paragraphs with a theme in the first sentence. That's what this is. This verse is a theme. Well, what's the theme? Well, it's really this general principle, and it's dealt with in Scripture from the start to the finish. And it's the principle of hypocrisy. And really, that's what this sermon is about this morning. Hypocrisy, the greatest show on earth. They're hypocrites in Genesis. They're hypocrites in Revelation. They're hypocrites when the world begins, and they're hypocrites when the world ends. They're hypocrites in every form of religion, and yes, including Christianity. There were hypocrites among the 12 disciples, and you know who that is. There are hypocrites in the leadership of the church, even the early church, and all these hypocrites had one thing in common. They put on a good show when they played the game of religion. Well, what is hypocrisy? Well, the Greek word hypocrite appears in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 6. It says this, so when you give to the poor, you see that? 
do not sound a trumpet before you as what? Hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may be honored by men. And in verse five, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. And in verse 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they may, will be noticed by men when they are fasting. So the idea here throughout this passage is one of, really, hypocrisy. And of course, in classical Greek, a hypocrite is used to refer to what? It's an actor on a stage who masks his real identity and assumes a role. The actor plays a part that isn't the truth about his life, who assumes something other than what is genuine. That's what an actor does. That's what they're paid to do. And then religion, and this is what is terrifying to us, is it is an outward show without an inward reality. That's the greatest show on earth, the outward show without that inner life of God within you. Now, the first hypocrite in the Bible is Cain. Everyone turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Look at verses 3 through 5. This is the first hypocrite. And what is disturbing about this is Genesis 1 through 3, well, 1 through 2 is the creation narrative. Genesis 3 is all about the fall of man when sin entered the world. The very next chapter, we find hypocrisy. It says, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now the question that I have and perhaps you do as well is, why did God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's offering, right? You ever think of that? There's like two people that thought of that this morning, so I guess the three of us are kind of abnormal when everyone else is normal, right? Well, I'm convinced that God had instructed Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel to bring them an animal sacrifice. Well, why? Well, because the primary and necessary offering was the animal sacrifice because it is that which speaks of, and this is the key point here, of the need for a substitutionary death for sin. Someone needs to pay the penalty for our sin. And of course, for the remission of sins, there always must be a what? A shedding of blood. But Cain, by bringing his own sacrifice, is giving no recognition that he is a sinner. You see that? This makes Cain's offering a self-righteous one. And in doing so, Cain pretended to worship God. His offering was really nothing more but showing off by displaying his ability as a farmer. And folks, when we pretend with God, that is hypocrisy. 
Now, the oldest book in the Bible is Job. Did you know that? But against the oldest book in the Bible, what does it say about hypocrisy? Well, actually, an awful lot. In Job 8, 13, just listen to these verses. It says this. So are the paths of all that forgot, forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. Folks, this is in the very, very beginning. Job 15, 34. For the congregation of hypocrites shall be desolate. Job 36, 13. By the way, the word hypocrite there is also the word godless. So we're talking about hypocr hypocrites, we're talking about the godless. People without God in their lives. Job 36, 13. But the hypocrites in, the, in heart store up wrath. So according to Job, from the very beginning, hypocrites are without hope and they receive judgment. Now God dealt with Israel's hypocrisy through his prophets. Thousands of years later, the prophet Amos wrote this. Now just listen to this because it is very, very telling. This is the Lord speaking. I hate, the word hate is used here. There is one other time that the Lord uses hate, and we just went over this not long ago, and what else does the Lord hate? Divorce. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sikath, your king, and Kian, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now, this is really, really tragic. God is saying, all those religious practices, their, their kingdom devotion, which God himself introduced and commanded to be used in worship of him, he says, I despise those. I hate them. Well, why? Because the people perverted and falsified their purpose. They had maintained the external. They were going through the motions, but the internal was what? Empty. They pretended to worship God all the while worshiping other idols. And the punishment for such hypocrisy was judgment in the form of exile. Now, it was not only true in the northern kingdom where Amos ministered to, it was also true in the southern kingdom to which Isaiah the prophet ministered. And he wrote these following words, and I want you to notice how similar God's words spoken through Isaiah are to his words spoken through Amos. This is Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Again, the very beginning, and what does he address? Look at verse 11. Just listen to this. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand, to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. 
Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity. I cannot endure the sacred meetings. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul, and here's the word again, hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Again, he says almost identical to everything that I have introduced, God says, and I command to be used in worship of me all the feasts, all the new moons and the sacrifices and the incense. I despise it all. Why? Because it is fake. It is fake. Of what use to God were sacrifices and festivals, Sabbaths and blood, if they were not accompanied by the kind of devotion that manifests itself in lives lived according to his holiness? You see, when people put on a show their sacrifices become an abomination. In fact, the Lord wishes they would leave his courts and their endless worship services were no longer a pleasure to him, but a burden. And I wonder how many worship services going on today are a burden to him. Do you see that God cannot bear religious sin? And I'm going to assume by the deafening silence that you do. Let me put it this way. Religion which leaves sin unchallenged, God detests. What's the solution? Well, it's genuine religion. Verses 16 and 17 of Isaiah chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. And of course, for us today, what does that mean? To wash ourselves, to make ourselves clean. That's a work only done by the Spirit through Jesus when we receive him as our Lord and Savior. We are washed, we are cleansed. Then watch what happens. Then the deeds change. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. See, that's what happens when the inside matches the outside. So we see that there were hypocrites in Israel, and there were hypocrites in Judah when the two kingdoms divided. But later in Isaiah chapter 9, this is just incredibly convicting, God continues his attack on hypocrisy. In Isaiah chapter 9, in fact, everyone go there, Isaiah chapter 9. Starting in verse 17. I think if you go to the middle of your Bible, you get to Psalms, then go to the right. You'll find Isaiah chapter 9. It says, Therefore the Lord, sorry, in verse 17, Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. In other words, God has always had a special place in his heart for the fatherless and the widows. 
Do you know that? Remember that? He's always had a special place for those people. But look what hypocrisy does. Hypocrisy leaves him with no room for mercy in his heart for the fatherless and widows. That is very sobering, isn't it? God hates religious hypocrisy so much that judgment is certain for those who partake of it. Turn to Isaiah chapter 29. Starting in verse 9. He says this, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. In other words, folks, God gave people over to a drunken stupor but not from wine. He blinded the eyes of the prophets and the seers. Folks, the prophets and the seers were the ones who heard from the Lord to warn the people of God's coming judgment. And if the people heeded the words of the prophets and the seers and they repented, judgment could be avoided. But you see, not in this case. God's judgment was so certain that if it was written down in plain language, who could read it? Nobody. So what in the world did the people do to deserve such judgment? Look at verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is a commandment taught by man. In other words, they are hypocrites. And there are plenty of other verses that we could get into in the Old Testament that talks about hypocrisy. But we are all, at one point or more in our lives, we give honor to God with our lips, but our hearts are somewhere else. And these people substituted the divine commandments with human traditions. And they have an inadequate system of hypocrisy. Now, they're hypocrites in the time of Jesus. Just listen to this. This is perhaps the best definition of a hypocrite. It's in Matthew 23. Listen to this. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and the disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That was the place of authority and recognition and honor amongst the Jews. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but here's the thing, but do not do according to their deeds. They say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Now, while our Lord confronted a variety of sins in his brief time on earth, 
he never did rebuke any sinners like he rebuked the hypocrites in Matthew chapter 23. And then your own time later this, this week, you can look at this in Matthew 23, but he reserved the most harshest language, folks, for those religious fakes who had masked their evil hearts with a facade of pious behavior. I counted seven times he calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites in Matthew 23. I mean, there were also hypocrites in the early church. Remember this story. The church is born in Acts chapter 2. And you meet the first hypocrites in Acts chapter 5. Remember this story? But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. And the story goes on to tell, of course, that the same fate fell upon his wife, Sapphira. They tried to put on a show of righteousness in the public setting, mind the way, because the people were bringing their offerings and the selling of land in front of the, the feet of the apostles in the entire congregation. So they are participating in the game of religion, playing the greatest show on earth, but God doesn't play that game. He doesn't play that game. He will not tolerate hypocrisy in his church. And so he strikes them dead. I mean, you want to talk about church discipline, right? (laughs) Now, one would think that that would perhaps, hopefully, be the final story on hypocrisy in the church, right? Wrong. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in his words to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times... Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy. I mean, there were hypocrites in the first times, and there were hypocrites in the last times. Hypocrisy is never presented pleasantly in the Bible. It is seen, folks, as this. Leaven, that is a a spreading infectious capacity. There was just too much. This is too wide of a subject for me to to handle in one sermon, so I'm really summing up a whole lot, but the Bible so addresses this issue. It's a white sepulcher, sepulcher, if you say that word, a filthy grave stinking with death, but covered over with a whitewash. A whited wall, which in reality is nothing but dirt and mud packed together, but painted to look white, when in truth it is ugly brown. An overgrown grave, so covered with grass that you no longer know it's a grave, you're so defiled in stepping on it. It's tares that grow amidst the wheat. In other words, there are in the church, wheat, believers, and tares, unbelievers. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a well without water. All the promises there of the water, it's down below, right? When the bucket is lowered and it returns, it's dry and empty. It's a cloak to cover sin. It's a, a mourner who mourns at a death because he's paid to mourn with fake tears. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is about to raise the little girl who had died. And they, they, by that point in time in history, they would pay professional mourners to come and mourn. So they were mourning. 
They didn't really, weren't really upset, but they were, it was fake tears. Because when Jesus arrives, what does he say? The girl is not dead, but she is what? Sick. And what do the people do then? They start laughing. So it wasn't genuine at all. Now you might be saying, I get it, Pastor. God detests religious hypocrisy. I need to check my motives as I practice my religious activities. Well, what is the right motive in my devotion to God? And that's what the great motive is. You must understand that to the Jew, there were three great cardinal works of the religious life. Three great pillars, you might think of them, in which the good life was based. The almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Now, Jesus would never have disputed that, but what troubled him the most, as William Barclay says, is that often in the human heart, in the human life, the finest things were done from the wrong motives. So what is the wrong motive? Well, Matthew 6, 1 is pretty clear. The praise of men. I do it in front of an audience so others may see me and I look good. And of course, you're doing nothing but glorifying yourself. Now that feels good, doesn't it? We can get a false sense of religious security when we practice our deeds before men and they recognize it. But what is the right motive? Well, one of them is certainly is to please God. For Thessalonians 4, again, Paul's saying, uh, he's, he's beseeching, he's exhorting people in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So in what I do, I excel still more in pleasing God. But they're really the, the best motive, or the right motive, is to please God. But the greatest motive, of course, is this one right here. And we forget this. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have what? Love. I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am what? Nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You want to, for lack of a better term, be rich in heaven, have rewards from your heavenly Father? Make sure that your motive, when you are practicing your religious practices, or you are practicing kingdom devotion, make sure it is done in love. Now, of course, from last week, what kind of love is that? It's an agape love. It's an agape love. It's God's love. Now, there are consequences that we briefly talked about when we're going to close with this this morning to not practicing our kingdom devotion with the right motives. And I want to talk to you about what I'm going to call the great consequence. This is where it may get, hopefully, I've kind of lightened this portion of the sermon up, but this may get really convicting. But I'm going to read to you a, a quote that I've used before from Brennan Manning. He says, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. To acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, 
in the door of church and deny him by their lifestyle, and that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Several years ago, a poll was taken that showed that the lifestyle activities of Christians were statistically the same as those of people claiming not to be Christians when it came to these following areas. Ready? So we're no different from the unbelievers in gambling, in visiting pornographic websites, from taking something that did belong to them, from saying mean things behind someone's back. We just went over that, right? Watching your words, loving your enemies. Consulting a medium or a psychic, having a, a physical fight or abusing someone, using illegal or non-prescription drugs, saying something to someone that's not true, getting back at someone for something they did, or consuming enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk. So in other words, we're not different in the world. Thus this whole real sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Because the very first section of Beatitudes was entitled what? Different. We are to be different. Now here's the thing. The only activity that was less common for Christians, and folks, this is not a joke, was recycling. 68% of Christians recycle versus 79% of non-Christians recycle. In every category that I just read, we're basically the same. That's not good, is it? Now this exemplifies what people mean when they say that Christians are hypocrites. And to be fair, there are wheat and tares in the church. So some of the hypocrisy is by people that aren't even believers. But they, say, they see people who claim to be morally upright, yet look, sound, act, and live no different than anyone else in the world. I mean, how is your life different from anyone else in the world? That's why I told you last week, when you are betrayed, when, when, when an enemy is, you have an enemy and they're coming at you, they're attacking you, that is an opportunity to do what? Separate yourselves from the world, to show that you're different by loving them. Now the following humorous anecdote of mistaken identity just really further illustrates my point. A man is being tailgated by a woman who is in a hurry. He comes to an intersection, and when the light turns yellow, he hits the brakes. I got to identify with the woman here. That would kind of tick me off, too. I would push through that yellow light if I was driving. The woman behind him goes ballistic. She honks her horn at him. She yells her frustration in no uncertain terms. She rants and get gestures. While she is in mid-rant, someone taps on her window. She looks up and sees a policeman. He invites her out of the car and takes her to the station where she is searched and fingerprinted and put in a cell. After a couple of hours, she is released, and the arresting officer gives her this, her personal effects, saying, I am very sorry for the mistake, ma'am. I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, using bad gestures and bad language. But I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker, the choose life license plate holder, the follow me to Sunday school window sign, the Christian fish emblem on your trunk, and I naturally assumed you had stolen the car. John Rupert goes on to write about this, saying the world gets pretty tired of people who have Christian bumper stickers on their cars 
Christian fish signs on their trunks, Christian books on their shelves, and Christian stations on their radios, and even the Christian jewelry they wear around their necks, Christian videos for their kids, and Christian magazines for their coffee tables, but don't actually have the life of Jesus in their bones or the love of Jesus in their hearts. Now this antidote rings true to me. You guys will enjoy this story because you know me well enough. This Friday afternoon, a few days ago, I received a call that a picture I had framed from Michael's in Federal Way I was ready for a pickup. So I told Erica I would go pick up the picture, and when I returned, we would go out for dinner. Now, this was 3 p.m. In my naive thinking, I thought that if I hurried, I could beat the traffic. Somehow, my brain had forgotten that I live in Washington State. There's always traffic. Now, the first sign that my dreams of a quick trip were dashed, now watch this, was just backing out of my driveway. There's construction going on down below us, and a truck was coming up the road, and since he had to ride away, I stopped. And I hate when this happens because I'm very decisive. I stopped. Even though this person has a right away, what do they typically do? They stop. I'm like, why are you stopping? You have the right away, right? So I waited. And I waited. And I waited. It's like two or three seconds by you. But it felt like an eternity, right? And I'm waiting. Eventually the truck pulled forward, and so now I'm behind this truck. And this truck is driving slow. I mean, under the speed limit, slow. Inwardly, people are laughing here because they're like, this is me. Inwardly, my blood is beginning to boil. My only hope for a quick trip now is that this truck, and I'm praying to God, don't turn left. Because I have to turn left, right? My heart sinks when I see the left turn signal light up on the back of the truck. Finally, the truck pulls out, but I have to wait again because a blue Honda Pilot is approaching on my right. I hope no one here has a blue Honda Pilot because you're going to get a big description of this car. At least I will now be following someone, I'm thinking, who has a taste in vehicles because I almost bought a Honda Pilot a few years ago. But still, I have to wait again. Now, when that vehicle passes, I can finally exit the neighborhood. I'm moving again, and I can feel my blood start to cool down when my worst fear is realized. The driver of this Honda Pilot is an even slower driver than the man in the truck. So now I'm behind two slow drivers. And my blood begins to slowly boil once more. As I'm following this Honda Pilot down Kersey Way, I hope that perhaps this slow-moving Honda Pilot will either make a left or a right. Basically, get out of my way. But my hopes were dashed as I followed them past the church all the way to Auburn Way South. Now, as I am following, I notice a number of bumper stickers on the back of this Honda Pilot. One read, put Christ back in Christmas. Another one read, God bless America. Another one read, Walking Wounded Project. Of course, that's pro-military, supporting the military, uh, the wounded military. And the license plate cover read, Every fourth child born is, in America is aborted. 
So I'm following a person who has similar tastes as myself in vehicles and is pro-America, pro-military, pro-life, and pro-church, just like me. (laughs) Now, all things considered, this person was probably a Christian. (laughs) And a Christian pastor who is following them is on the verge of falling into a full-blown case of road rage all because he was in a hurry. And he determined that they were just driving too slow. Now here's the thing. By all outward appearances, I looked fine. I wasn't hawking the horn or cursing the driver or riding their, their, their bumper, but inwardly, <laughs> there was a war raging. See, I was one poor choice from letting my frustration get the better of me, acting on my emotions, and damaging my witness for Jesus Christ. All because I was operating under a self-imposed deadline that was completely out of touch with reality, and that made me hurry. And my hypocrisy would be on full display for everyone to see. Now, I shared this story with my wife at dinner and asked her, what is wrong with me? To which she replied, do you want me to start alphabetically or chronologically? (laughs) How much time do we have? In other words, what she was saying. Now what happens when our hypocrisy though is on full display? One of the most recent examples of hypocrisy that's had widespread damaging effects happened a few months ago. It took place during the storming of the Capitol. It was led by a now famous horn-wearing man, you probably see him in your mind, named Kunan Shaman. A group of rioters, and they made their way into the floor of the people, the Senate, and now they stood triumphantly behind the very dais where our elected officials, including Vice President Pence, have stood. They were flagrant lawbreakers, right? They brought disgrace to our nation. They endangered the lives of our political leaders. Michael Brown writes this, and yet they stopped for a word of prayer. Did you catch that? They lifted up their voices in Jesus' name. They made intercession for America. Talk about brazen hypocrisy. How dare they lift up a prayer to the God whom they were defying at that moment? How dare they lift their hands in worship after using those same hands to illegally breach the Capitol? But it gets worse and more comically absurd. Remember what they did? The men quickly realized that they were wearing hats, and that presented a problem, because they must have learned somewhere that men should pray with their heads uncovered, which is based on a common misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 13. So they quickly stopped the prayer, removed their hats, because surely they must be careful in their religious observance, and then continued their prayer, ending with a hearty amen. And what has been the effect of that hypocrisy in our country? Now, next week is Easter Sunday. It doesn't feel like it, but it is. It's a time now when unbelievers are more open to attending church. I don't know if we can get any more people coming to church because we're still in this pandemic mode. Despite the fact that if you've had the vaccine, the CDC says you don't need to wear masks, you have states that are still requiring you to wear masks. That being said, 
As a way of practicing kingdom devotion, I want us to all look at Elise and Lydia. They have for you, and we're going to pass these out so you can't leave this room without taking some. Last Easter, I ordered these to pass out to the neighborhood. And of course, what happened? The pandemic. And there was no way we could go door to door. So Elise, and maybe Roger can help them as well, are going to pass these out for you to... to Means you grab one, Angela. Okay. Yeah, take take multiple ones. We I have more as well. They're not for you. As much as I love you, they're not for you. Give them to a neighbor or to a friend or to whoever the Lord lays on your heart and invite them to church because there are two Sundays that people, particularly unbelievers, are more willing or open to coming to church. And what are those Sundays? Easter and what? Christmas Eve, exactly. And so even though we're still in a semi-lockdown, I think we're, we, was it Monday we go in phase three, or do we already? Yeah. We're in phase three, okay. So what I want you to do is just to pray about this and then to invite a neighbor or a friend to come to church. Now, the website does exist that's on the flyer. It's just, it'll take you to a different website. It's like encounter.blog or something like that. It's got the picture of the, the handout I'm giving you, Okay. Most importantly, apart from actually putting into practice, inviting other people, is on the very back of that flyer, what do you see? The address of the church and our time. So invite them to come to church. Now, how many more do we have left back there? Because I've got a half a box full, plenty. Does anybody want more to pass out? They're gonna be in the back on the table Okay, please, I don't want to see any in this building. Take them all, go invite your friends. In other words, pray about it and act on that by faith. And let's see what God does. I like for this place to be full of people. Because next week we'll have an Easter message and a gospel presentation. Amen? Okay, the second point I want, is application point is, is don't drive in front of me. Just stay out of my way, all right? All right. What do you say? No, 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 no. Yeah, exactly. I can't be in front of him. Just pull over, all right? Like that, I'm an emergency vehicle. Get out of my way, and I'll be fine. I didn't pray for patience. I want people out of my way. Right? Let me close the prayer and we'll close the song. You're all laughing because you feel the same way I do. I just will, will say it about myself. So let's pray for all us hypocrites in this church, right? Father, as we stand for worship this last song, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, convict us the areas of our lives where we're inconsistent, especially in those areas when it can be witnessed by others, and we're a bad testimony to our devotion to our best friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we worship you, again, in, in spirit and in truth with this last song this morning. And all God's people said, amen. amen.